Dave Stovall. I'm the host of this podcast, which is called the Disciple Makers Podcast. And I just want to say I'm so glad that you're listening to this episode today, and I hope that it's going to bless you. Today we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And depending on what tradition you grew up in, you might either feel fear or excitement, or maybe you don't feel anything when you hear those words. I, for one, grew up in a Southern Baptist tradition, and I held an unnecessary and really a hidden fear of the Holy Spirit. Conversations like the one you're about to listen to today in this episode have been super helpful for me to begin opening up my heart to the Holy Spirit and to pursue the Holy Spirit. So I hope that this conversation is going to be helpful to you. This clip is taken from a series that's been airing in the Discipleship.org Collective called Theology Thursdays. And the host, Daniel McCoy and Renee Sproles, got to interview lead pastor and author David Young. It's an awesome conversation. You're going to love it. Let's listen in to what they have to say. Welcome to Theology Thursdays. And I'm so excited for today's interview because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's a great conversation and we want to get right to it. But I want to ask Daniel to share a a story that kind of sets up um, maybe the tone for the conversation about the work of the Holy Spirit. Daniel? Yeah. So, hey, I'm Daniel. Um, I was just reminded of the Holy Spirit's power recently when I gave a sermon for a chapel service at a local Christian school. Um, I had been going through a storying training, which is, you know, how to memorize and, and tell the stories out of the Gospels and just basically, you know, let the Holy Spirit be the teacher of, of these gospel stories um, as you just kind of recite it and, and see what God does with it. And so I, I did that. I memorized the story out of the gospels where the sinful woman was anointing Jesus' feet. And so I memorized it. And then there, basically, I just, I recited it and I recited it again. And then I asked a bunch of questions just straight out of the text. I made a couple of, you know, observations at the end and that was it. And there was like no creativity. And I'm telling you, it was like the best chapel sermon I think I've ever given and it was totally removed from my ingenuity, from my creativity. It was just the Holy Spirit just taking the words that he had inspired and using them to affect people. It was really cool. It was just a good reminder for me that it's not about my uh, intelligence, not about my creativity. It's about the, what the Holy Spirit's doing. So that was that was really helpful. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm so excited to have David Young in um, this interview because he really— I mean, I've studied this a lot. He taught me several things that I hadn't really thought. So let's get right to it. Here we are. David Young, pastor of North Boulevard Church of Christ. Hey, welcome to Theology Thursdays. Today, we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and we are excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be great. Uh, We have David Young with us. Uh, Let me give him a little bit of an introduction, and then Daniel will start us off with the first question. David serves as the senior minister for the North Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He has worked for churches in Missouri, Kansas, and Tennessee, and taught New Testament at several universities and traveled widely teaching and preaching. He's the former host of the New Day television program, a board member for the Renew Network, and the author of several books, including A New Day, The Rhetoric of Jesus and the Gospel of Mark, A Grand Illusion, and King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. He's also writing a book right now on the Holy Spirit. He holds a BA from Fried Hardman University, the MA from Harding School of Theology, an MA and a PhD in New Testament from Vanderbilt University. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, David, it seems like in North America, we might be a little bit behind when it comes to understanding the Holy Spirit because we may not even understand the idea of the spirit world itself. And so could you speak on that? You know, what? what how could we maybe catch up with some of the rest of the world in some of these areas? Uh, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, the sort of the first thing that has to occur is uh, a, a recognition that there's such a thing as spirits and that the world is inhabited by spiritual beings, that um, the physics doesn't account for everything that we experience in the world. And North Americans, uh, because of our secular background and, uh, you know, in so many ways, we've been blessed by the secular background, by the rise of science and that sort of thing. We, we have we generally fail to see the spiritual dimensions of the universe, all, all of them. And so the very first thing when we start to think about the Holy Spirit is that we don't have 
categories for thinking about spirits in North America. So it's it's a really confusing thing. We might end up with a doctrine about the spirit, but still not have an experience of the spirit, or at least not know we're having an experience of the spirit. So what we want to do is restore a concept, a robust concept that the world is a spiritual place, the universe is a spiritual place, and uh, that um, science and technology are good at answering questions about how things work, but they're not capable of explaining why things work. It's a spiritual question, the question of why things are the way they are. Hmm. So go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. How, how do you, um, how do you help somebody who has been trained to think in terms of, you know, purely science, you know, science is uh, what that's what, exi- you know, sci- scientific, uh, scientifically uh, discernible, uh, sense data that that is reality and the world of spirits is just kind of a mythical thing. How do you help that person understand that no, actually the spiritual world really is out there? You know, um, it's not easy to do actually. It's, it's, so I've even, I've struggled with it. I've written about it, but I've struggled with it. Uh, Jesus uses the illustration in John chapter three of the wind, uh, John chapter four, no three. I don't know why I said four. So it, what he says is that you can see the effects of the wind but you don't actually see the wind. And that's a helpful analogy for thinking about the spirit that the so many of the things that we see around us are the effects of spirits, spiritual forces, um, and you know, the powers of spirits, the power of the truth of spirits, or in some cases, the power of the deception of spirits. We see the effects of it, uh, but we don't actually see the spirits themselves in the same way as with the wind. And so what we have to do is to learn to ask questions, not just how did something come about, but why did it come about? So here's a good analogy. You could take the entire chemical makeup of a human body, lay it out on a table, arrange it perfectly so that it looks, I mean, so that it is the exact representation in every way of a human body, but it's still not alive. So all the how questions might get you to the assemblage of a human body, but it's the why question of why it suddenly sits up and starts to read poetry or why it's able to reflect on itself or why it would wake up and say that you treated me unfairly. All of those are, those are spiritual questions. We live with them every day. They're the questions that actually drive us, uh, but we don't recognize them as spiritual questions. We've been trained not to see them as um, emanating from a spiritual dimension. So what we need to do is acknowledge that the, the world is a lot more spiritual than it is physical. And, so much of what we encounter really has a spiritual reality to it. If we don't recover the spiritual reality, we're always going to be fighting with the wrong weapons. And this is really just a problem for us here in North America, right? Like as you travel around the world, you know, I've been to China, um, India, in Africa, they don't have a problem understanding this necessarily. Yeah, so uh, several years ago, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor published a book, The Secular Age. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a brilliant work, by the way, and it's now pretty often oftenly quoted. So Taylor says that, uh, he, he restates what you just said, Renee, but, but he, he, he thinks that even in historical categories, he observes the, this, this thing that happened with the rise of uh, you know, the Enlightenment and the age of science and reason and so forth afterwards. So we're talking about the 1500s in Europe. He says, before that time, you really had to work hard at being an atheist in the West because the presumption, the the spiritual presumptions just permeated everything. There really weren't any really atheists. Even people who wanted to be atheists couldn't get away from the conviction or the the gut feeling that there's spirits everywhere. Taylor asks the question, how did that change? Because in the 21st century, you actually have to kind of work at, at believing in God. Even believers have to work at it. And his, his fascinating question is, what changed? And he's got a, you know, a complex set of answers. But one of them is, that sort of the bottom line is, we lost our sense that physics is enchanted with a ghost, that there's something, there's something that animates all of physics, uh, which, by the way, from a physics standpoint, makes sense. You know, there's something projecting all of the reality that we experience. It's not just here, it's being, it's emanating from someplace. And most humans throughout most of history and in most places on planet Earth still today instinctively see this. It's just that we've been bred not to see it in uh, Europe and in North America and, and wherever the, that European influence 
trusts is strong. We've just been taught not to see it. So we don't ask questions about it. And if you don't ask questions about something, you just eventually lose the ability to see it. So yeah, most places, if you go, for example, uh, Renee, you know this, we've been planting churches uh, largely in West Africa, but but all over North and West Africa. The questions that they ask there are not, is there a spirit? The question is, which spirit do I want to follow? They instinctively see the spirits and they, they experience the power of the spirits. The only question is, which spirit is the right one. And one reason why church planting can be so fruitful there is because the, the, the spirit that Jesus brings is so much more powerful and benevolent and, and loving and charitable and gracious that it's a really easy thing to choose. So we're going to pick this, this spirit. In the West, we keep asking the question, is there really a spirit instead of which spirit are we going to um, allow to influence us? That seems like a long answer. Sorry. No, that's great. That's great. Um, so, which leads me to, we're here because we want to talk about the, what we see in scripture. I mean, we have general revelation, natural revelation, like you said, it, people all over the world know there's a, there's a spirit world, but let's look at the work of the spirit and like the old and new testaments, because it's different. Um, and, but, but you still see, you know, the spirit world at work and the Holy spirit at work. Right. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so um, first let's say this, that the, the Spirit appears in the opening two verses of the Bible and appears in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. So the Spirit's all the way from cover to cover. And the Hebrew Scriptures, the word that's typically translated Spirit, is, is etymologically connected to things like breath and wind and blowing and that sort of thing. And, and that indicates, again, the, the intuition that most people already have that I'm more than just physical particles in motion, that there's, there's just a life in there. There's some kind of other force at work. In the earliest pages of the Hebrew scriptures, at times the spirit of God, as it's often called, appears only to be God when he's acting in a forceful way. I don't think you would end up Trinitarian if you stopped reading the Bible at the book of Malachi, at the, at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, because in a lot of ways, the spirit there just appears to be the extension of God or God at work another way of saying the power of God. Uh, so you have things like, you know, when Samson did his all of his feats with the Philistines, the Bible says the spirit of God came upon him and he did this. Even Bezalel, who is the architect of the tabernacle back in the book of Exodus, God says, I'm going to give him my spirit so he can do a good job designing the tabernacle. So even, you know, if you have great engineering skills, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But but it appears almost like a power, an, an impersonal power in the earliest part of the Old Testament. It's only when you get to the prophets that the spirit suddenly starts to take on more rational qualities, the qualities of inspiration. So you have the spirit of the Lord comes upon people and they and they speak the word of God. Or God even says in Ezekiel 37, I'm going to give the people in the future my spirit and he will move you to obey my word. So towards the end of the Old Testament, the spirit seems to take on a separate identity than God the Father. In the New Testament gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is, is moved by the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit, he's empowered by the Spirit. But again, I'm not sure you would exactly come across Trinitarian at that point in the first three Gospels, because again, the Spirit appears almost to be an impersonal power at times. But when we get to John, John's Gospel, his letters, and the works of Paul, we discover that the Spirit is actually a part of the Trinity. He's a person. He's distinct from, but one with, the Father and the Son. And he's, he becomes not just a power, but as John, as Jesus says, you know, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He'll be your comforter or your encourager. Uh, he talks about life in the Spirit. Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit as leading us and pointing us to Jesus. And so in Paul and John, we get this robust view that all along now we look back and see, oh, that's what was happening in the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Holy Spirit is um, he, he's one of the Trinity. He's a member of the Trinity. So it's right to say that God both has a spirit and that God is a spirit. Both are right. Mm -hmm. And so as we read the Old Testament and then especially the New Testament, we begin to realize that, uh, you know, they're, they're, the Holy Spirit is a person and it's a right. spirit-infused world. Um, you know, that's one way of arriving at that con conclusion. Have you personally um, had any experiences where you realized, oh, this is this is for real, and and you you kind of became aware experientially that the world is a lot more spirit infused than 
uh, kind of the default secular world that we kind of tend to think about in, in North America? Yeah. Um, so sometimes, you know, the Lord will kind of rock your world and expose himself in ways that you weren't expecting. And so I've had those experiences. Sometimes uh, when traveling, I've, I've, I've seen people who, you know, have experienced miracles and, and or, or maybe experiences where they describe that which is so out of the ordinary, so um, non-Western, that you get shocked into realizing, oh, my goodness, we have such a small view of things in the West. I'm not, I'm not trying to get off on the West here. I'm just saying we have a small view. We just have, we think that if we answer the how question, we've also answered the why question, and that's just not true. And so that happens. And then also, you know, we, we experience miracles at North Boulevard. It's not that big of a, I shouldn't say it's not that big of a deal, but it's, it's not that uncommon. And you, you realize, okay, well, that's, you know, only God really could have pulled that off. Um, and could have captured that moment the way he did. But I do, I, I do want to say again, I'm like everyone else in the West. I've been so conditioned to ask how questions that I that I that I have to remind myself to look at the why questions to see the work of the Holy Spirit, um, because it's not our default position in the West. I think some of that's changing, but it's not our default position. And, and speaking of things changing, do you think that the devil? ever overplays his hand to where it kind of shocks people into realizing, okay, there is a spirit world. Or do you think, you know, in the same vein, do you think that we're coming to that, uh, you know, that season where we're going to be realizing, okay, uh, the, the, the powers, the spiritual forces, you know, it really is a question of who's the most powerful here and not just a question of what exists and what doesn't exist. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so years ago, there was an, a film that was made called uh, Mr. Frost. Jeff Goldblum was Mr. Frost. And in the film, I'll give you the short version. He murders a whole family ruthlessly that, and then calls the police and says, you need to come arrest me. I just murdered a whole family. Then he goes to an insane asylum. And the whole plot of the story is he, he summarizes all these weird things start to happen. He says, I'm the devil. And they put him in an insane asylum. But eventually you find out he actually is. And what he says toward the end of the film is, I came to prove that I really exist because y'all quit believing in me. I actually think that's the exact opposite of what's happened. That if the devil can convince us he doesn't exist, he's won. You know, he's so infiltrated us that, that we don't even know he's here anymore. So I think it's to the advantage of spiritual forces of evil for us not to know they exist. Because now we'll treat all of our problems with the wrong weapons because we don't even know who the enemy is. So I don't know that he would want to expose himself when he's um, when he's so thoroughly deceived us into thinking he doesn't exist. Uh, so we you know, we treat everything now. Everything is treated as though there's no spiritual dimension to it. Uh, I shouldn't say everything, but but you know, in the West, you're considered a fool if you treat things from a spiritual standpoint. There's, there has to be some kind of medical explanation or therapeutic explanation or physical explanation. And so the devil has us exactly where he wants us. We don't even believe he exists. Look, when I was growing up, it was a credible argument in our churches, credible. In fact, you were expected to believe this, that demon possession in the New Testament was just another name for mental illness. That was taught in an evangelical church. That my church didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe they even existed in Jesus's day. They thought that was just sort of a pre-scientific way of talking about mental health issues. Well, goodness, if if a, if a Bible-believing church can conclude that spirits don't exist, nobody's got hope. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I I remember. Um after I went to China to go visit a friend who's a missionary there, I came back with some like woo woo kind of stories. And I remember asking you, David, I was like, what in the world, what do you think is going on here? And you said, um, Satan and his demons would operate differently in a place where people, um, acknowledged the spiritual realm versus here where we don't acknowledge it. So if that kind of stuff that I saw happened here, it might actually move us to believe, which is what you're saying. Sure would. Yeah. Yes, it would. Yeah. yeah if, you, if, if so, uh, and you've seen this, Renee, but uh, but if you go, I mean, you see this in uh, other countries where other cultures, where if the devil did hear what he did there, oh my goodness, our churches would be filled with people because they'd be terrified. Mm. Uh, they'd run to Jesus. And um, But in, in cultures where they have pretty open experiences of spirits, they won't run to Jesus. They'll run to their ancestors, spirits of their ancestors. They'll run to some other God. 
Um, and so it's not that they're not running. It's just they don't know to run to Jesus yet. Yeah. So, I do want to say this. Since we're on that, let me just say this. The greatest power that the evil spirits have is the power of deceit. So I don't ever want to give them too much power. I don't want to grant them more power than they actually have. Um, so you've heard me use this illustration maybe um, before that. If you run a race, you know, you have all these people on the sidelines of the race who are yelling out, you can do this, only one mile to go and all that sort of stuff. So you're the one who picked the race, but they're they're trying to give you information that will either motivate you or discourage you in some in, in the demon's case. That's how I kind of envision what the spirits are doing, that they're either telling you there's no way you're going to make this. You know, you're, you're a loser. You're, you're not forgiven. If you try this, it'll be better than that and so forth. That is the deceit, which is what Satan means, the deceit that is their primary power. They're smarter than we are. They're stronger than we are. And they lie. As Jesus says, when, when Satan speaks, it's always a lie because the lie is his native language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay, so I'm thinking about, I don't want to take us down a rabbit trail, but you're, you're talking about this progressive revelation of the Spirit's work and how we really get kind of a triune view of God by the time we get to the New Testament. So, um, you know, my son is in college and his he goes to a secular university, but his friend goes to a Christian university. And they were walking through the book of Acts and they get to um, Acts chapter five. Is that Ananias and Sapphira? Okay, so they get there and the professor says, you know, this like this incident here where it says, you know, you sinned against the Holy Spirit and they drop dead like that probably didn't happen. Like because God wouldn't do that. God's a God of love. And um, which is it makes me so mad. (laughs) But um, it's interesting to me. It's highlighted. They sinned against the Holy Spirit. So. What's going on there in this? I'm assuming that's a liberal progressive view of scripture. So what is what's going on in the progressive world? That's a world that you interact with and um, write about some. What are they thinking in terms of the Holy Spirit, um, who God is, that kind of thing? Well, so progressivism is an accommodation to um, whatever is the latest secular um set of values in North America. And so it's a it's a constantly changing religion, progressive Christianity, because it's always trying to keep up. It's usually a step or two behind whatever secularism is saying. And so since secularism now has, up until recently at least, really focused on um, universalism, diversity, tolerance, multiculturalism, those sorts of things, then progressive Christianity in an effort to, to, to be at home with secularists has also tried to define God in the scriptures that way. So that's that's why someone would argue that. Um, they have to redefine all sorts of critical issues in order to make it work, but they're willing to do it because they want to fit in. There's a desperate need to fit in. Interesting, by the way, some of that's starting to change. So, you know, uh, uh, the, the last election, this uh, California had a proposition on the ballot that would reverse the old proposition against discrimination. So all of a sudden, progressives now are advocating discrimination uh, for social justice theories and, and equity and things like that. Um, so it's interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see how progressive Christianity tries to all of a sudden go back to discrimination as they're sort of tailing behind whatever um, secularists are saying or pagans are saying in the U.S. The The idea of sort of negating the Holy Spirit's work in that text is the effort to sort of say, well, you know, um, we don't like the idea of God doing any kind of discipline. We don't want we don't want a God who, at the end of the day, really who practices justice. And I think some of that is from kind of an elitist viewpoint in the North in North America. So progressive Christianity is elitist religion, and it's um, so I've made this case. It's an ugly thing to say. I don't mean it to be rude, but it's true. I think most elites have all and white elites in North America have, have always been on the winning side of justice. So we don't have a need for justice because we always get it. But in most places in the world where people have been mistreated and abused and um, marginalized and slandered, justice is actually good news for those people. And the idea that God would be just and that he would that he's not okay with people mistreating one another is is a is a is a beauty of God. It's one of God's attributes. So um, you know, it's really probably just an indication that. The guys who's arguing this, he's he's always gotten justice. He doesn't need justice. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal to him. 
he likes indulgence or tolerance or whatever he wants to call it. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure I've answered your question. Well, that's ha- that was the first half of it. And then why would why would it even be written that way? Like you lied to the Holy Spirit. It's like brought up, you lied to the Holy Spirit. So uh, uh, you just see the, the work of the Holy Spirit, like on in every chapter in Acts. And so that's what it is. That's it. what it is. So yeah, you see at the very beginning of chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes up on the church. You know, they get the, they start saying this is exactly what um, Joel two was prophesying was going to happen. And all of a sudden, you know, the culminating moment of that text is in 38 and 39, where Peter says, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's happening in the book of Acts is that there's a whole movement of the Holy Spirit. So anything that's done well is done well in the name of the Holy Spirit. Anything that's done poorly or sinfully is done against the Holy Spirit. I think that's the context. Did you have this big Holy Spirit movement going on in the book of Acts? Which, by the way, it's worth pointing out because if our churches today aren't a big Holy Spirit movement, then we haven't restored the church. We're not like the first century church. It was a big Holy Spirit movement. I think that's what that's why he names the Holy Spirit. Luke does yeah. in Acts five. Yeah. It's because it's the whole, it's a Holy Spirit movement. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the book of Acts, obviously there's a there's a huge seismic shift when Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit comes. And a lot of our churches um, do they do they function as if Pentecost is a reality, and if they uh, were to function more as if they've been through that seismic shift, what what would it look like? Um, how could our how could our churches, um, you know, be, be be more Holy Spirit focused, Holy Spirit led in a way that um, you know s- still uh, doesn't doesn't take us into some kind of really crazy, um, uh, you know, out of control type, type of experience. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? It does. Yeah. Um, well, let's say, first of all, that, uh, you know, the vision of the church that's cast in Acts chapter two is that, um, there'll be dreams, visions, blood, fire, and billows of smoke. So that's God's vision statement. A church should have blood, fire, and billows of smoke. And if you remember just a few chapters down, it's in chapter five, I think it is, verse 12 or 13, right in there, that uh, Luke says about the first church, he says that um, God continued to do these amazing things and nobody dared go there. I mean, have you read that verse? It People didn't dare go to that church. They were terrified of that church. And so I, I, I do want to walk us back and say that there's there ought to be something about your church that's terrifying to the world. Um if, if the church isn't terrified of your church, there's a chance that your church just looks a whole lot like the world. You don't have a whole lot to offer the world. Um, so I don't want to tame the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think that's a big part of our problem is that, you know, we, so I've used this illustration before, but if, if given the choice, you're walking down the adult hall in your church, on the one side of the hall, there's a sign that says we're studying the Holy Spirit in this room. And across the hall is a sign that says the Holy Spirit is in this room. We would pick the study of the Holy Spirit because that's a lot safer. We want a doctrine, but I'm not sure we want the actual experience, the real thing. So in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is unpredictable, untamed, wild, powerful, and out of control as far as humans are concerned. So I wouldn't want to say, let's aim to domesticate the Holy Spirit and and kind of bring him down so that we can have a little more control over him. Um, That's the first thing I would say is that If you're looking for a safe and controlled environment for the Holy Spirit, you're probably looking at the wrong religion. Uh, But let me say this. uh, The Holy Spirit, is he offers us as much as we're willing to take. So we can quench him. We can quench his power. We can put out his fire. We have some control over it. I would say that like a good starting point for our church is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Twice we read this. In Ephesians 6, we read it. And in the book of Jude, we read it. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke 11 that, uh, you know, remember in, in Matthew's accounts, uh, uh, if you being good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give good gifts to you? Well, in Luke's account, it says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to you if you ask? So I would say we start by praying, Lord, whatever it is your Holy Spirit wants to do, we're open to it. And I would keep praying that prayer. And then I would like buckle your seatbelt because when God starts to answer that, it might not be what you expected, uh, but it'll be what he wants. So. We should expect the Holy Spirit. We should not expect him to be in our, fit our categories. And we should be ready for the, the wild ride he's willing to offer us. And um, 
So I'll stop there. I, I, look, I, I do feel obligated to say that I'm not sure that I've done what I'm advising. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure I've done it. I think we've done it more than most, uh, or, or maybe I should say more than I used to do. But um, I can envision asking the Holy Spirit to do much bigger things and me being kind of scared to kind of saying, you know, I, maybe just a little bit because I, I might have enough right now. This is all I can manage. Yeah, which which makes me think like we, we hear phrases of like walk in step with the spirit, be filled with the spirit. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't fill yourself up with wine. Be filled with the spirit. So can you talk about that? Like, what does that look like? So when I, I guess I was about 30 when I started to realize the Holy Spirit is like on every other page of scripture. Mm-hmm. And I had just kind of not appropriated the work of the spirit in my life to any degree that would be it's very helpful. And I was like, I got to have this. I got it. Like, I feel like I'm trying to drive the car without any gas. And so it was helpful for me to be surrounded by people who were farther down the road than me and, and could say, it look, it can look like this, or it can look like this, knowing that God is infinitely creative, infinitely powerful. It's not prescriptive necessarily, but I think it's helpful to say like, here's what it might look like to walk in step with the spirit. Here's what it looks like when you're filled with the spirit. I mean, we get the Galatians 5, 22. It looks like love, joy, you know. Can you help us with that? So I can, uh, I think. Um, let's start here. The, the the text you're referring to in Ephesians chapter 5, starting uh, starting back a few verses before 19. But by the time you get to 19, you get it strong. Don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit while you sing and speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So that's a really important verse because his, he's comparing drunkenness with the Holy Spirit. And that's what you don't want to miss. That bec- both of them uh, constitute a form of giving up control. So you can give up control to alcohol, which, by the way, we call it wine and what? Spirits. It's because it has the same kind of function. You can give up control to alcohol, but that's a reckless c- control. Or you can give up control to the Holy Spirit. And and that will be, uh, you know, a God-ordained type control. So I do think the analogy is really helpful. In both cases, you're saying, I'm going to let something else control me. And then I wouldn't miss the fact that he connects uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit in that text to, to singing praises to God. Because there is another, and we, the reason we call it music, music is because the old view is that a muse, just sort of a little deity of some form of spirit actually moves in and makes something happen. And so when we when we sing and when we create music, all of us, most of us at least, except the most Philistine among us, has a sense something higher is happening. It's like that ringing chord, you know, when four, if you have four voices in perfect harmony, they'll create a fifth voice. It, it, it actually physics, in physics it occurs. This, that, that ringing voice that comes out we, we're all aware of the fact that somehow in music, something higher happens to us. Something deeply spiritual can happen. So, so the first answer to the question is, it means letting the Holy Spirit be in control. And that's not a comfortable thing for us because most of us, like we really need to stay in control to get the outcome we hope that we can get. And what God wants to know is, I got a better outcome for you, but you have to give me, you have to hand over control to the Holy Spirit. So how does he do this? That's the big question. You know, is he talking to me? Do I hear him audibly and so forth? So we know that he speaks through the scriptures because you know, from cover to cover of the Bible, he's communicating to us through the written scripture. We also know that he moves the heart. So again, the, the text in Ezekiel 37, God says, I'll give you my law, but I'm also going to give you the spirit and he will move you to obey the law. So it's two steps there. By the way, that's what happens when Paul goes to Philippi. Uh, you remember there, he's, he's dealing with this young woman who, uh, who is already a Jewish believer. The Bible says that Paul preached the word and then the spirit moved her heart to obey it. So, so the spirit moves us, but we have to be willing to listen to him. As far as how does he communicate dreams and visions? Yes, we know that's happening. It happens routinely in a lot of places. But also there's some sort of way that the Holy Spirit, Calvin would say, impresses upon our heart a truth that has already been in front of us. But we needed some sort of movement to do that. And in order to do that, we have to listen. So we have to pay attention. Lord, is this what you're calling me to do? Um, it can't be inconsistent with the Word of God because the Holy Spirit's not, not going to contradict himself. But it will be something that impels us. Okay, this is what I'm asking you to do next. And when we hear the voice, if we say no long enough, we'll no longer hear it. We'll, we'll cease to hear it. 
So we have to learn to say yes when we hear it. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. For me, it, it's so helpful to think in terms of there being a, it being a spirit-infused world because then it's not as though the Holy Spirit is kind of a, uh, you, you know, a presence that's maybe not always welcome, but but he he is among all, you know, an entire spirit-infused world. And, and because of the powers out there, it's like, I need the Holy Spirit. It's not just like this optional, you know, I, I will be influenced by a spirit of some kind. And so, um, you know, that being said, what makes the Holy Spirit unique? Obviously, you know, a member of the Trinity, but but that word holy, I think is is interesting. And I, I just love to know, um, you know, wh- why is that a, a an important adjective for the spirit? And, and what exactly does that mean for uh, his relationship with the spirit world? Does that, does that make sense? It does actually. Yes. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. First, the Bible has uh, a number of different names and, and terms that are used to describe the Holy Spirit. I think the spirit of holiness is used. I think the phrase Holy Spirit, uh, well, we'd need to go back and count this. I think it occurs give or take a hundred times in the Bible, that, that exact label. He's given many other labels. Spirit of the Lord is a common uh, label in the Old Testament. So for us, in again, in secularism, where we, where we have such a kind of a frail view of spirituality anyway, for us, the, the word that leaps off the page is the word spirit, Holy Spirit. In the New Testament uh, period, the word that left off the page was holy, not spirit, because they already had spirits. They, spirits were everywhere. What the Bible was saying is pick the holy one. You got plenty of spirits, but pick the holy one. Where for us, it's like, well, holiness, yeah, whatever, but is there really a spirit? So the idea of Holy Spirit is you're going to be led by some spirit, and you're going to be controlled by a spirit. You're going to yield to the voice of a spirit. Pick the one that's holy. So that's the focus. It's like, okay, holy meaning, you know, separate from the world and in union with God. And so that's the voice we want to listen to is the one who is holy. Because the truth is, even in secular America, even when we don't know it, we are being led by spirits. Uh, we're being told things by spirits. We're being deceived by spirits. There are truths that spirits are trying to urge upon us. And so you're going to pick a spirit. And, you know, the Bible says, be filled with the Holy One. That's the one you want to be filled with. That's really helpful. Yeah, um, I'm thinking just in terms of, um, like, family issues that seem intractable, miscommunications, um, you know, spouses continually misunderstanding one another, Um it's interesting and really helpful to think, okay, let's take care of what might be at work behind the scenes here. Not that we might not also need to, you know, sit down and talk or go get some counseling or, you know, take medicine, but let's deal with the spirit world. Let's let's get that clean. That to me is like job one. I'll give you a personal illustration, which I'm embarrassed about, but, but um, I'll be vulnerable about it. So when we first got married, Julie and I, I used to make me jealous when she would go hang out with her sisters. Now, you know, I look back on it, it's like, why in the world would that, why do I even care? But it made me jealous. And um, I realized why some years later, I'm able to look back on it and realize, okay, I had some insecurities. I felt unloved and I needed her to, I needed her to signal to me pretty much every minute of every day, David, you're the most important thing. 
and all I want is you and I needed all that sort of stuff. But now I look back and I realize, okay, uh, I may have had the feeling, but but the the deceit of I'm unloved, I'm unlovable, nobody loves you, you're not worthwhile. That was all from demons. They were all deceiving me. They were lying to me about what was going on. So I picked jealousy. I picked that, but I picked it based upon this, the deceit of evil spirits. I was listening to their lies. Mm-hmm. And by listening to their lies, I picked all the wrong strategies and, and I hurt my marriage. And that's like the tip of the iceberg of what we go through. It's those constant lies that evil spirits are telling us. You know, the reason this has happened is because of that. Or if you just do this, this, then this will happen. It's a constant stream of lies. We need the Holy Spirit to come and teach us truth so that we, through truth, can have the kind of life that God designed us to have. If, if you could maybe make a list of some of the top, maybe top three lies that you feel like the uh, the evil spirits are feeding, especially to our church leaders. What do you what do you think uh, What do you think they're struggling with? One of them, one of the big lies that all of us I shouldn't say all of us, many of us struggle with is you're not good enough. You're you're fooling yourself. You know I know you better than you do, and you you know deep down inside you're not you're no good. You know this. Uh, you know you've been promoted way beyond your your rightness and your and your goodness. That's a that's a constant lie that we that many of us struggle with. Then there's a lie of, um, I deserve this. So that's, you know, that's why so many church leaders fall, you know, men fall, especially into sexual addiction and so forth, because it's like, you know, um, you talk about church leaders, it's a very lonely thing to do uh, to lead a church. It's um, remarkably lonely. And so you, you know, you invest all this time and all this, you, you feel like you've sacrificed so much of who you are. A lot of it can be very unnatural. And so it's like, well, I deserve a break. I deserve something. And so it's pornography or it's an affair or something like this. And for a lot of church leaders, it's the idea of, you know, dadgummit, all I've given, I deserve this. That's a lie from the devil. And it's a lie that's, you know, it's tripped up a whole lot of people. And uh, so you ask for three. One of them is uh, you're never forgiven. You're not forgiven. It's that your baggage is still part of who you are. It'll always be part of who you are. Your past failures that they will always define you. You can never be, though you'll never be forgiven. And the feeling of being unforgiven is, again, it's a lie from the evil one. But it's a real damaging, crippling lie that a lot of people believe. These are lies. And so, again, the devil may not have caused me to fail. It may have been something stupid that I did. But he lied to me ever since then. He's told me ever since then, see, I told you you were worthless. He just keeps that lie going. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to tell us the truth. You're clean. Not only are you forgiven, we're going to take that very point uh, where you fell, and we're going to turn it into your best ministry. That's what the Holy Spirit's t- telling us. So we get to pick which one we're going to listen to. Some of those lies don't even make sense. I mean, yeah, we hear them all the time, but it, like from a, a purely secular standpoint, I'm not even sure why we would have that cycle going through our heads all the time. You know what I mean? Especially, uh, you know, a lot of the discouragement that leads to, um, you know, suicide. And it just seems like I I remember talking with um, a friend from Kenya and he he and I were studying at the same school and he was he was talking about, you know, there's just a lot of demonic activity, you know, visible demonic activity where he was at. Uh, He wasn't seeing it so much in, you know, in the States. Um, But he said, man, so much suicide and so much. Uh, discouragement, and he 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 felt like that's probably where the devil's at work. And it's just, uh, I just I feel like there is some overplaying of the hand. It's like some of these things don't make sense from a purely secular perspective. Well, yeah, that's true. That's not a question. <laughs> right on, man. Yes. Also, I'm thinking. Um, because I work with women primarily and um, women seem to like live in lies. A lot of times Um, we believe lies and we, um, we, we don't deal with it. And so I think a lot of times um, you're making me think of Romans eight, where it's like the mind that's uh, focused on the spirit is life and peace. You know, mindset on the flesh is death. Um, it really is as simple. I remember when um, I went to counseling and my counselor said, okay, when you, you hear that lie, 
you just replace it with the truth. And I was like, I just paid $125 for that. Like, <laughs> what? But it's, she's, she's not wrong. I mean, you can, you can appropriate the Holy Spirit and say, okay, remind me of the truth or open your Bible. Remind me of the truth. Okay. I'm replacing that lie with the truth. Like it's one thing to recognize it. It's another thing to say, okay, no, here's the actual truth and speak it out loud and then deal with the, deal with the, the demon, demon that's lying to you, spirit of, you know, pride, you know, go back to Jesus out of here in Jesus name. I I didn't learn that kind of thing for, till I was way into adulthood. You know, people who do this, right? It's not just women. I think men's lies are a little simpler than women's, but they're, they may be just as deep. Yeah. Men only lie about two or three things, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, when, uh, so this is the positive things. We, we can be filled with the Spirit. Our minds can be changed by the Spirit. We can walk in step with the Spirit. How do we quench the Spirit? Uh, so there are two texts that talk about that. One of them is in Ephesians 4 chapter where he says, you know, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And then First Thessalonians chapter 5 where he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And uh, it appears in both cases that it's the opposite of the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's, it, you know, it's, a, it's also a fascinating question. How can you command me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I thought he had to do that. I didn't know I could do that. Um, <laughs> about, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit, like I've got some control over that? And the answer is I do, actually. So it comes through yielding ourselves. We yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit by, as Jesus says, denying ourselves, taking up a cross, and following him. When we do that, the Holy Spirit begins his work. So then the opposite of that is when we decide, no, I'm going to do it my way, now we're quenching the Spirit. When we say, I'm going to do it, you know, I think I've got a better control on my life than, than the Spirit does. When we do that, we're putting out the Spirit's fire. So it's 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 when we work against being filled with the Holy Spirit, which again, it's just, it still fascinates me that there are times we read of people who are full of the Spirit, as in Jesus was full of the Spirit. And then there are times when we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So quenching and putting out the Spirit's fire must be the opposite of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if, like um, from Ephesians 5, if singing songs... You know, it helps you be filled with spirit. I'm thinking of like secular music, secular entertainment. I mean, I love some classic rock. Don't get me wrong. But I'm thinking like I'm setting my mind. If I'm not careful, I'm setting my mind on on the the flesh and I'm and I'm 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 taking I'm just bathing in the flesh and, and and lies. Yeah. And that's actually that's a really good way to put it, Renee. I've come to believe that there's so there's an incredible amount of power in stories, in the stories that we allow ourselves to hear. Mm-hmm. Because a story is at, at the at its most basic level, a story is a way of arranging data. So, you know, um, it, when something happens in my life, I always put in, in a story, I put it in a story. So there may have been a billion data points that struck me, but I arrange them as a story. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And if you tell the if you tell a story that's not a God or uh, version of the story, you start to believe your own stories and they become the narrative by which you live. And so when it comes to like the media and the entertainment of North Americans, it's it's a constant secular story that we're hearing. So it's no wonder if all you're hearing are secular stories that at some point you're unable to hear a spiritual story. You're unable to hear a righteous story because all you're hearing are stories that arrange data in a secular way or a godless way. Mm-hmm. So we really have to guard what we let come into our minds, um, which is the, the context of Ephesians 4 when he's talking about it, you know, that, that you have to put on a new self. You can't have the old self. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have the old self, here's the thing. Here's the warning. If you decide that, you know, America's godless entertainment and media and so forth, if you decide you're going to feed on them, then don't blame God when you get all the problems that come with it because you you made the choice. That's what you ate. Mm-hmm. That sounded threatening. I love it. I love it when you get all the Old Testament prophet. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what are some of the most beautiful things that the Holy Spirit does? You know, oh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All, all the, the the fruit of the Spirit, which is beautiful, uh, that He uses the term fruit. Um, I still wrestle with that some because 
you know, an apple the tree doesn't have to really work at making apples. It just, it's in its genetics. It just occurs. And I still have to work some of the, at those virtues. So I think, okay, I must not be where God wants me just yet. But the, so the Holy Spirit, he produces fruit in us, the, these, these beautiful virtues that are necessary for being like Christ. He transforms us. I like this text in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Paul, although he's, he's talking about the Jews and he says, before Jesus, they had an inspired book, but it wasn't enough. You need a book and the Holy Spirit. So the whole third chapter of 2 Corinthians is, we get the book, but we also get the Holy Spirit. And he says, right towards the end, he says, uh, you know, the Jews' face was veiled. It, it's a long story, but he, he says that. Then he says, um, Moses' face was veiled. He says, but we have unveiled faces because we have the Holy Spirit. And we are, here's the quote, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Spirit. And so one of the beautiful things the Spirit does is he he moves into us. You know, that those texts are twice where the Bible says, that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit or marked by the Holy Spirit. It's a way of saying he's like our, he becomes our new genetic uh, construction, our new DNA is the Holy Spirit. So as I get older, I look more and more like my mother. I do physically, I look like my mom. But in the same way, when I get the Holy Spirit, the more I walk through the Christian walk, the more I look like God. He's a, he's a DNA. He starts to evolve in me. I start to get his features. I start to, you know, my hair drops like his and all that sort of stuff. I start to look like God. So that's one of the beautiful things the Spirit does is he transforms us. And I like the phrase from one degree of glory to another because, because it doesn't happen all at once. It's a sanctification process. It's a process. It's not a, it's not a one-time act. Uh, so he does that. He transforms us from one degree of glory to another. He gives us power as well. He gives us certain gifts. And these gifts are then to be used for the good of the body, the body of Christ, talking about the church. And the gifts are wild and varied, and uh, they're dispensed at his will and at his, uh, you know, at, according to his plan. And then we get to see these crazy, incredible things that God does with the gifts that he gives us. So there's a few things. As an apologetics guy, I, I enjoy apologetics and defending the faith. Um, I wouldn't have figured that one of the most powerful arguments against Christianity would have to do with the spirit. Um, but the, the longer I've been into apologetics arguments and then that sort of thing, the more this just really, you know, big elephant in the room keeps, keeps just being there. And that is that if the, if the spirit is indwelling us, shouldn't we look different from the world? And then when we don't, when churches don't look much different than the world, is that not evidence against the reality of the Holy spirit? Um, and I, I just find that to be a very uh, uncomfortable, um, you know, kind of uh, a disconcerting type of argument. Um, and I've, I've heard people talk about it who are on their way out of the faith. It's like, why, why isn't there the difference? This, this major promise that we see in the New Testament, why don't I see it? And um, yeah, what, what, what do you think about that? So let's say two things about it. Um, the first is that um, one reason why churches in North America don't look as different from the world as they might in other places is because we largely built this world. And so it actually looks a lot like us. It's not that we look like they, they look like we. And so, um, you know, for example, I was born in St. Thomas Hospital, named after the apostle Thomas. I grew up in Smyrna, Tennessee, named after the city of Smyrna, in the book of Revelation. My name is David Young. I'm named after a character in the Bible. When I went to school, my lunch was paid for with money that said, in God we trust and printed on it because we had a Christian foundation of our nation. We believed in public education for men, women, whites, blacks, everybody, because we've been influenced by the Christian idea that all people are created in the image of God. When I graduated, I went to Vanderbilt University which was paid for by one of the Vanderbilts, but founded by a Methodist minister for the purpose of promulgating the gospel here in North America. What I'm suggesting is we built such, really such a, a, a crazy good world that if you go to the world, you still get all these Christian benefits. And so it, it's, a, it's a disingenuous argument. It's also a like breathtakingly un, ungrateful argument that you know, the Christian world births so many of the blessings that we live in, and now all of a sudden we're mad at the Christian world, or, we, or we're criticizing it. Um, goodness, 
you know, uh, we, 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 we're, we're going to celebrate Easter. Uh, we had Valentine's Day not long ago. Christmas is still a federal holiday in the U.S. I mean, all around us are these wonderful products given to us by 2,000 years of Christian civilization. So maybe we don't look all that different because we're the ones who gave birth to this world. Um, that may be part of it. And then the second reason is because we're a hospital. we got a lot of sick people. Done. <laughs> I don't like the ingra- ingratitude of that, of, of not you, but of the, when I hear people make the argument, it's like, well, dadgummit, you know, you're living in the best of all worlds because we're the ones, we're the ones who ended the gladiatorial games. We're the ones who taught the world that one man and one woman in a committed married relationship will change everything. We're the ones who taught adoptions and abortions and, and uh, excuse me, adoptions and uh, fostering. We're the ones who said, don't kill your babies. In the Roman world, they would abandon their babies for the wolves. We're the ones who stopped all that. We, we Christians are the ones who built public education. We built the hospitals. We're the ones who started all the universities. We're the ones who said that there's such a thing as human rights. Nobody believed that till we came along. We're the ones who invented just war theory. We're the ones who, we're the ones who are the abolitionists. We were the ones who were the civil rights leaders. We're the ones who gave birth to this world. So you can walk away from the church and still be eating all of our fruit, but don't look back on us and say, you know, you're not much different from we are. The reason we're not, because you're sitting at our table. Mm. Boom. That's good. <laughs> you made me mad, man. Why'd you make me mad? <laughs> oh man, that was that was really helpful. Yeah, it is. So look, we're doing work in West Africa right now. There, people are being fed who haven't been fed. Your families didn't have anything because of the church. People are going to school and been in school in there in generations. People are drinking clean water from the wells that we're digging. Clean water they haven't had since the Garden of Eden. We're transforming the world because they're not a Christian world. They don't get all the benefits yet, but they're going to be by the time we're done. Mm-hmm. So probably one, just one last thought on the Holy Spirit. Um, you can either say something that you want to say, or I can just say life is better when the, the more you submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, I can just say personally, like life is, life is better. I. I don't want to go back to that 20 something year old person who really knew was really blinded to the Holy spirit. Um, this, this tension of like walking in step with the Holy spirit and being filled with the Holy spirit and then, um, obeying even when it feels hard. Um, do you think the spirit, maybe here's my final question. Do you think the spirit helps bridge that gap? I mean, I think eventually the goal is obedience is the, is the food we want to eat. We don't want the junk food of sin, of acting like God doesn't matter. Um, like I, I want my kids to obey, but eventually when they move out, I want them to want to obey. So do you think the work of the spirit helps us in that way? Or is it the spirit prompts us and then, and then we have to go, <laughs> we got to go do the hard thing. Like, oh yeah, you got to actually pray for your enemy or you got to actually go apologize for that thing, even though you don't think you're wrong because you got to try to live at peace with your, you know, brother as much as it's possible with you. What is, can you tease apart that tension there? So um, what we, what we, what we really need is a heart transplant. We need our, we need our will, our desires to be, um, to be healed. So our, our will is broken. That's one of the costs of, of sin is it breaks our will. It, the fall of humanity broke our will. So it's it's an odd thing that you can you know decide to do something and then still not do it. Uh, it's especially odd because I think like I can tell my hand to do anything and it'll do it. It doesn't. It never argues back. It doesn't say I'm not real sure. I, I would rather do this or that. But when I tell my will, hey, you know, stop eating so much, my will argues back and says, wait, but but not yet. You know, it was Augustine's thing before he became a Christian. He used to pray, Lord, help me be sexually pure, but not yet. Just can we wait a little bit longer? I'm not quite done yet. Um, and so that's what we need the Holy Spirit to do. We need the Holy Spirit to, to transform our will, give us a new heart. I think that's what Paul's talking about when he says from one degree of glory to another, that there does come a point where, and I'm not there yet, but there comes a point where we're so transformed by God that our will is, is not even that important to us anymore, it, that, that we're acting out of the will of God. 
loving it, lost in him. Um, you know, classic Christianity teaches that as sort of a mysticism, but it's a mysticism available for ordinary people who, who want it. Um, but, I, but I'll say, I'm not sure how much we want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, God will give us as much as we want, but I'm not sure how much we want it. A lot of us are like, you know, I want enough to be kind of spiritual, but I like what I've got. So don't take that away. And so that's all you're going to get. I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it is. That's helpful. You're making me think of people that um, who, when they encounter like that terminal diagnosis and um, their immediate reaction is, well, I'm just going to see what God has for me in the, in the midst of this, that level of surrender is is to me what you're describing. And so it's it's available, but let's be honest. The reason a lot of us don't have it is because we don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. I want it. I think (laughs) I do. I do. This is, this has been a great conversation. It's, I think it's been really helpful. I I hope that, um, a lot of you out there will, um, be inspired to just press into this. And ask for more. Be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, and and David, if I could just ask one last question, just real short. What what would be the first step that you would, if, if there's someone listening to this saying, "Man, I, I really have been kind of functioning just on my own. I've been leading, trying to lead myself, and it's not working out. So I really do want to. I want to be not led by the flesh. I want to be led by the Spirit. So what what is just a first step? As soon as we're done listening to this, that we can commit ourselves to today. What what would you say? I would go with Jesus's remark, you know, how much more will the Father give those, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I would start praying. Maybe a good thing to do would be say, okay, I'm going to spend 40 days just praying, Lord, what is it that you've been wanting to do with your Holy Spirit um, that I haven't known? Or, or just, will you just start to fill me with your Holy Spirit? So we we don't control what God does, but we can control the space inside of us where God does it. So what we want to do is get the space open so that God can do what he wants. So I would start out with prayer. Uh, Prayer and fasting um, will open up a place for God to say, okay, I've been waiting for you to ask. Now that you ask, let me show you some things. And then start watching, see what he does. He actually, he'll respond. uh, It's pretty, when you get in the habit of asking and in the habit of seeing, as I said, it's not, I, I hesitate to say this, but it almost, it's like, it gets ordinary. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, of course God does this. You start seeing it everywhere. It's everywhere. As I say, it's not that spirits don't exist in the West. It's just we don't see them because we quit looking. But once you start looking, you'll see them everywhere. So ask. Spend 40 days asking God, give me your Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Get me out of the way. When I resist, help me not to resist anymore. good stuff. That was a great conversation. Um, Renee, what did you come away with? Well, so many good things, but I especially liked his point about um, from Ephesians 5, where um, Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks to the Lord always and everything. And um, how he made that. Mm connection between spirits which is like alcohol and spirit and that um that when we're filled with the spirit we should be animated and we all know what it looks like when someone's filled with too much alcohol and paul's like no don't do that be filled with the spirit and here's what it looks like you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and Mm -hmm. spiritual songs you're grateful the holy spirit's interceding for you in prayer the holy spirit's counseling you and teaching you and for me like that that made all the difference. You know, before I really understood how to walk in step with the spirit, it felt like I was kind of trying to push the car with no gas in it, you know? And it's like, when you really embrace the concept of what we have in the Holy spirit, that it's really true. What Jesus said, it's better that he goes away so that he can send us his spirit. Mm -hmm. It's actually better when you actually believe that and live that, um, then you're you just live this animated, joyful, um, really purposeful life, and I love that.
Just want to say thanks so much for listening to this episode today. And if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts so that you can stay up to date every time we release new episodes on this podcast. All right, y'all have a great day. I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.